0: rewind i'm josh and this is a podcast where i watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends today's episode is about both licorice pizza and being the ricardo's and joining me today as he is always such a welcome presence during this time of the movie season it's my friend elijah howard elijah thanks for being here
1: hey of course happy to be here as always
0: yeah, so we're going to talk about Licorice Pizza first, and then we'll talk about Being the Ricardos, Licorice Pizza, the newest movie from Paul Thomas Anderson, his follow-up to 2017's Phantom Thread. Licorice Pizza is, uh, you know, a kind of a, a return to the San Fernando Valley for Paul Thomas Anderson. It's set in 1973. It tells the story of a uh, a 15-year-old there named Gary Valentine, who's uh, played by Cooper Hoffman, son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, and frequent Paul Thomas Anderson collaborator. I'm sure we'll talk about his performance some, but he, again, he plays 15 year old Gary Valentine, who is a bit of a child actor, but also an entrepreneur that seems to have the ability to start up businesses whenever he feels like doing so. Uh, he, you know, is a kind of a, a, a man about town in a way that not many 15 year olds you ever you ever seen are. He ends up, um, you know, befriending a 25 uh, year old young woman named Alana Kane, who's played by Alana Heim of the band Haim and other frequent collaborator of Paul Thomas Anderson. He kind of sh- uh, strikes up a friendship with her that he, you know, teases it wanting to be more, but they end up uh, forming a friendship and becoming business partners and, you know, uh, just. You know, Elijah, this is the part of the podcast where I normally like kind of give a plot summary. But I mean, I feel like that's a bit of a fool's errand in this movie as it would be for some Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Uh, so I'm not I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that. But, it, you know, the movie tells a story of uh, tells a bit of a story, though, about, you know, Gary and Alana as they. Uh, you know, navigate the navigate the valley and uh, uh, a very complicated relationship between themselves. But they also, you know, they have run ins with other people that are either, you know, analogs for uh, historical uh, figures around the entertainment industry or uh, actual uh, real life people to uh, to some extent or another, whether it be in politics or in entertainment. And uh, we, you know, just see them getting into all sorts of hijinks elijah that's all i'm gonna really say about it but we can just jump into it but i i am curious because this feels like you know it, it, this feels so sprawling uh in a, in a way uh whereas uh phantom Thread, as great as it was was you know like a very very like on a much smaller scale with just a you know a a, ham- a handful of characters and a uh and, and just like one, I mean, I guess it, this is also kind of one setting in that it's the valley, but this is like all over the place. Whereas so much of Phantom Fred, like, you know, takes place in a house telling a very specific story between these two people, or this just gets so much, so much more spread out and it's doing so much more stuff with respect to, uh, I guess, whether it be uh, the music telling a story about old Hollywood, telling a story about these two people, uh, other people who their lives intersect with. and how they kind of go their own separate ways at points. They come back together. It just I, I, it's its all over the place. But I mean that in like the best way possible. And uh, and also its it feels like a departure from some of his work with respect to the people he's working with, where, you know, he always does a great job of casting. But this is just uh, also another very unique thing in that, like, he's usually has like some uh, fairly big movie stars at the center of his movie. And uh, here they're on the periphery. Um, so i'm curious like what i don't know if you saw this movie with anyone or who 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 all you've already talked about it with but i want to know what was like the first thing you wanted to talk to someone about after seeing this movie because i feel like there's like a lot of things you can hold on to from it
1: yeah i mean it's uh it definitely is is sprawling in a way and and in some regards it's kind of like a return to form if you will it's maybe that's not I, i wouldn't say that that PTA has lost his form in any way over the last couple of years. No, I think we both love Phantom Thread. Yeah, I I totally agree. But in a way, uh, and and to be clear, I still felt that Phantom Thread, even though it was much more contained, was still kind of an epic. It has these sort of chapters in the same way that Licorice Pizza does. Mm -hmm. But this film reminded me a lot more of Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Yeah. um, You know, his earlier films from the 90s. in
0: In ways other than being set in that part of California.
1: Correct. Exactly. More in terms of kind of this, the idea of telling a story in like eras, um, and sort of these sort of interwoven moments uh, in people's lives. I think um, I saw I saw this movie by myself, um, but I I I remember kind of my immediate feeling walking out was like. magnolia is (laughs) magnolia for for lack of a better phrasing magnolia was high on cocaine and licorice pizza was high on marijuana like it's just a completely different vibe Mm -hmm. um than a lot of his previous films uh in a in a good way it's a it's a very warm and inviting film and that was kind of my feeling from leaving the movie was like wow, that was just such, like, a happy movie. Like, it, it, it is,
0: I hadn't even really thought about in those terms, but it is kind of cool to think, like, yes, we we, we both acknowledge that he's a great filmmaker, but it's, it's kind of funny to take a step back after watching this and be like, wow, like, there'll be blood came out of this guy's, came out of this guy's head, and so did this movie, you know? Exactly,
1: yeah. I mean, before this movie, really the closest he had come to making, like, a truly happy movie would be, like, maybe Punch Drunk Love?
0: Yeah, and I even mean, that even, like, even that goes to some like kind of like uh, upsetting places.
1: I, yeah, some weird and dark stuff happens yeah. in, in Punch Drunk Love. Um, but that's yeah. I mean, and that's not to say that he hasn't made like upbeat or energetic films. I mean, obviously, like I said, Magnolia is Ma- Magnolia is you know Magnolia walked so that Uncut Gems could run in terms of just being like a madcap, like very uncomfortable film. Boogie Nights kind of in the same way Uh, you know there's so much going on in Boogie Nights but I would not consider the ending of Boogie like I would not I did not walk out of Boogie Nights the first time being like ah that was so nice (laughs) whereas with this film yeah I mean it's it's really the first time he's made a movie that's just through and through is a happy film and that's not to say that there's not like weird things that happen you know that there's not weird things that happen in this movie there certainly are but yeah my my first immediate reaction was just like ah like that was such a pleasant film
0: yeah i i had kind of had that similar overall feeling both as i was watching it and after it was like wow like i i had first of all i did have the observation i already kind of like made about the story uh, right when i opened the podcast i was like oh well like yeah that might not have been like the tightest of pots but like man i just i just had such a nice time and it felt like i was in very good hands and a guy that just like knew exactly what he wanted to do with like a lot of with like a lot of tools at his disposal and just kind of like knew where he was putting all the pieces on the chessboard just to like make us have a fun hang and i like greatly respected that because uh well like i guess you're right yeah like uh phantom thread is sprawling in its own way like you don't go there you don't go there for like fun hang even if there are, there's actually some funny parts of phantom thread too but it's like you know you're also going there to like kind of like uh have some kind of like intense and effed up moments also and here it's like man, like, I guess things get intense here or there, but like you, you just leave coming out of it with a different feeling. And that's a nice feeling to have and putting yourself in the uncomfortable situations that maybe you kind of felt as you saw some of the developments in uh, Phantom Thread. It's like, oh, like that's a different kind of way that can be nice to get effed up with the movies. And, you know, you can appreciate both. Yeah, absolutely. I'll back up for a minute then. I guess the next place I want to go then on uh, talking about this movie is like when it, when it first got announced, I think I, I avoided learning too much about the plot again, not that there's a lot of, a lot of it in this movie, but like, I was just like, Oh, it's going to kind of tell the story in the seventies of the Valley and like a child acting. And that was like really all I knew. And so I think I actually expected like more of a showbiz movie than we actually, than it, than it even actually was, even if, you know, a lot of this movie, you know, touches on that part of Hollywood. And so one of the things I thought was kind of interesting was like, you know, you get a little bit of that, but then it kind of becomes apparent that like Gary's maybe not going to like, you know, that's not going to be his long-term job or anything like that. And I thought that like, that was going to be like almost like a lot of the movie and it was going to be like more directly involving like the life of a child actor, as opposed to a child who acted. So I'm kind of curious though, because it like, it makes a conscious decision though, to like, you know, still like, you know, kind of dip a toe in that part of the world throughout. And like, there's all these different, like, I don't know connections to old Hollywood they try and get uh they try and get Alana like he tries to help Alana become an actress I'm wondering was that something that really like you appreciated in this movie as someone that probably even knows about that time in Hollywood more than me what did you think about like the um the different kind of like touches that like Paul Thomas Anderson adds onto this movie to kind of like you know enhance his setting in that way where it's like not only is this guy going to be an actor but like hey I'm going to like kind of float in and out and put in like a I don't know a William Holden type figure here have this one really one off kind of interesting casting scene where where like this girl like has to go through like what it actually might have been like to like get cast as like a newcomer in a movie back then and it might not even have that much to do with the rest of the movie uh plot wise but like hey this is just kind of like a departure i want to make what did you think of like him notwithstanding like all the other stuff we'll talk about with this movie like just like you know like hey this is definitely going to be a part of the movie and i want to like kind of float in and out of like this part of los angeles
1: yeah i mean it felt well and you know my my loving hesitancy to do comparisons on your, uh, on your podcast. Yeah. But I you're mean, you're I doing it, not me. So you can go there. I, th- I think the obvious touch point that many people have noted is once upon a time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, which is a film that I very much disliked. Oh, I, um, I, I I didn't
0: remember that. Okay.
1: Because I felt that it was very, uh, it was very disingenuous. It felt like magazine clippings. Um, it didn't feel uh it, it felt uh masturbatory shall we say okay. um and this film i feel like is so much more like textured and loving and, and maybe in a way accurate as a representation of pretty much the same time period and the same place you know hollywood in the uh, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s, kind of through through the end of that era. And where I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has sort of this like cynical, self-congratulatory energy to it. Uh, Licorice Pizza had a much more reflective and personal and intimate relationship with that time period. It didn't uh, seem so much as kind of needing, feeling like it needed to put It's characters into famous situations. Rather, it had these moments that felt ridiculous, but believable, like later in the film where uh, Sean Penn shows up temporarily for a few minutes to play Jack Holden, Holden, who is definitely not William Holden. (laughs) But uh, William Holden being a a famous actor from the 1950s and 60s. And I I
0: actually didn't pick up on that in the moment. Like, I've seen William Holden movies. I really like most, just about every one of them. I like all of the ones I've seen. But, like, I didn't know enough of him as, like, a figure outside of, like, the movies he was in to, like, know if I was, if that was just a coincidence, they named this guy Holden. And once I, like, heard more people talk about it, I was able to appreciate it in a different way when I went back and watched it again.
1: Yeah, so in that scene, so in, in the scene that he appears in the film, he appears as an actor who's producing a movie who scouts Alana Hyams character Alana for the role uh, for a role in the movie and, and seems to have sort of some kind of weird obsession with her that we later uh, sort of develops is because he doesn't really see her as herself he just sees Grace Kelly and there is a moment where they're at a, a bar restaurant and Ja- uh, Sean Penn's character Jack Holden encounters a, a a hilarious cameo from Tom Waits as a uh, as a kind of washed up director, and the two of them reconnect over a film that they did some time ago, uh, and end up reenacting a stunt from, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's such a, like a ridiculous scene, all of it. I mean, Tom Waits is gargling, half drunk, uh, you know, director. And Sean Penn's brooding, drunken actor and the whole idea of them recreating a stunt from this movie. But at the same time, it feels so it feels so believable. Like it feels like a story you would hear from the 70s in that time period. Like, oh, there was that one time William Holden got drunk at a bar and reenacted a bike stunt from a movie from, you know, 15 years before then.
0: So I mean, it almost sounds like you like you kind of like the idea of just kind of playing with those kind of pieces to recreate a moment like that, as opposed to being like, nope, they were there for the Manson murders, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah, it felt it. Whereas whereas Once Upon a Time in Hollywood felt like vain wish fulfillment. To me, this movie felt like magical realism, Mm -hmm. Uh, like a lot of PTAs movies tend to do. There's a sense of like of this blurring of of magic and reality, where it's like you can believe that that maybe happened. You know, and that's something that he definitely he definitely did before with Magnolia, which is why I, you know, immediately went to Magnolia after after seeing this movie. That was my first thought. A lot of Magnolia is about this idea of kind of like reality meeting this you know place of
0: magic. Yeah, and I think there's like a version in this movie that is like probably I don't know takes the child actor thing, like way more to the extreme, like I was kind of expecting. And I, look, I, I trust PTA enough that I would have been there for something like that if he did it, but I didn't actually realize until I was just listening to an interview with him beforehand that like a lot of his ideas for this movie, like loosely came from him knowing this guy that was like a, an actual, like figure, kind of like that, that I guess was Jonathan Demme's producing partner, then Tom Hanks producing partner, but had mm-hmm. been a, a child actor back in the days. Who's like, who had just been like this own, like kind of guy who'd hit a lot of different touch points in, uh, in los angeles over the years before like you know settling into some kind of career in entertainment but had you know done some other businesses and i i I think that's a that's a smarter way to go about it like i get it you need to be inspired by something as he was but you know if he had just been like i i don't know if someone had like i don't know if in my head i went there or if someone had actually like uh kind of dropped that name out there but at some point i got it in my head that it was going to be like some kind of ron howard type of story and i like just because you know him being a child actor and all and like i mean not that i would have been there for that but i feel like it would have been a very different way of watching this movie if that was actually kind of what it was and uh you would have just like kind of ran into like a lot of different i don't, I, I don't even want to say issues because not to say you could have pulled it off but like it might not have been as fun of a ride if you like didn't have like th- this kind of like uh story that felt like could go go anywhere while having like situations that you were like oh i mean could certainly see a couple old uh, old Hollywood farts getting into some kind of hijinks like that. I certainly appreciate how it went there, and it made, it made me kind of when I heard that interview with him, I was more excited to kind of go back and learn more about that guy. And I was glad that like it wasn't just like kind of ripping straight off of like a well-known child child actor's life or something.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think that's. I mean, there is there's a beauty to it, and I I found it to be so uncynical mm-hmm. in terms of you know I I could have seen like you said a movie about. A child actor where it really focuses on his career as a child actor and and again not to bring up magnolia again but there is a touch point there that is something that he did right like there is a character in magnolia who's like a child prodigy whose career slowly gets ruined over the course of the movie and there's you know an element of loss of innocence but there this is such a different film textually than anything else he's done and and i think it was a great idea to base it so you you mentioned this actor uh, his name's gary getzman mm-hmm. i think that's how it is it, yep. it's getzman right yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing about gary getzman right is you could without knowing anything about him you could look at his career and be like eh, okay like i guess he's he's sort of famous like if you thought about it in terms of like the promise that he supposedly showed as like a child actor you know being on yours mine and ours uh or being in rather in yours mine and ours as a kid um and and just sort of you know how how that ended up really more so turning into him just being a producer you could walk away from it and think well wasn't he kind of a failure but i think that's what this movie's really about is it's not like you can't judge people on that and that's what I thought was so like so wonderfully uncynical about this right you know, it's
0: like I've so I've actually I've never seen yours mine and ours and I didn't even make the connection until you just mentioned it and I put it up my computer like I, I didn't realize that was like a Lucille ball movie and that I guess that was supposed to be some sort of Lucille ball type figure in the movie and that we're going to be talking about a Lucille ball movie right after this like I I <laughs> when I when, when I invited you to talk about being the Ricardo's after we'd already agreed to do this I hadn't even made that made that connection in my head which is which is uh, which is kind of funny though I think it's one other thing that's worth noting that'll give us a, um, that allow us for the opportunity to talk about these characters is I think it's interesting that like uh, in so much as if this had just been the story of like a child actor going all along, I feel like that would, I, that would almost give you like an easier, uh, more to hold on to with a character and probably would even ask less of an actor than if you're uh, going in the direction that PTA goes in with this, where it's like, you have to buy this kid as someone that's like not only like charming enough to like be a child actor in like B movies, but also like, be some kind of weird entrepreneur. Like how many 15-year-olds do you know that just kind of start businesses out of thin air? To have that like not feel like totally ridiculous, I think you need to have like a, a pretty good performer. So I am curious like how you felt about like watching Cooper Hoffman in this movie because I honestly didn't know what to make of it going in. Like the, the guys never acted before. I didn't read any stories before this. Like, I mean, I, I, I obviously like, Paul Thomas Anderson, like, has known probably known the kid his whole life because his like he's worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman since before he was born. But like, I don't I have no, I, I had no idea going in if he'd ever, act, you know, acted in school plays or anything like that. Or he's just like, I'm just going to put this kid here. Like, I had no expectations really, aside from like what I'd seen about the movie you know peripherally going in and i was just like i was pretty struck by the like the the confidence of him as an actor to like be able to like do that part like not you mean you got to be confident to like do any kind of part but then to like play that particular part where you have to actually exude confidence not just like be that confident internally i was i i I mean i was pretty damn impressed i i I, what what did you think about it going in and were you kind of cynical about the casting or were you just like i mean i don't think pta would go there if he didn't actually have a good feeling about this
1: yeah, no, I mean, I trusted PTA in that mm-hmm. decision. I, I relayed this story to somebody else. I don't remember who, but I, I, it was funny when I first, you know, sat, sat down in the film the first, you know, couple of minutes. I don't know if you re- if you've really felt, if you felt this way too, but the opening scene, mm-hmm. right, this kind of play setting of the two of them first meeting of, of uh, you know, Gary and Alana meeting for the first time at his school. I felt like their acting was so wooden Like, I was like, oh, my God, like, they these are neither of these people are great actors. Like, and I was legitimately worried for like a minute. And then as the movie went on, I was like, I thought back to it later. I was like, well, no, they're they're both phenomenal. (laughs) Um, And it totally made sense then at that point that I was like, oh, you know, like it. It was the point, right? It was like their first meeting was so like was so awkward and it it does drop
0: you in in a weird way. I don't think I totally picked up on it at first. Like I knew she was not of high school age because of like, uh, because of like the the age gap conversation that surrounded the film a little bit. So I I knew that, but like I didn't. I don't think I totally clicked what was going on in the first place. Just like that, they're at some kind of headshot thing, and like it was at a school too. I'm like. What exactly is her job? I I, I didn't totally grasp like, oh, her job is like photographer's assistant. Like I didn't, I was still getting my bearings in that scene a little bit though. It did have a different vibe a little bit, but I was more just like, I, I, I kind of get what you're saying though. And that it, it felt a little different from like the rest of the film. But at the same time, I think it was more just like, someone probably would act a little differently if you're just like when you meet a a, a kid like that that presents so differently than most 15 year olds do so uh ultimately it kind of like made sense to me in hindsight but like I did have I I I wasn't really sure how to feel about that scene the first time I saw the movie I I I would certainly agree with that
1: yeah but I will say of course by the end of the film I mean Cooper Hoffman was just absolutely phenomenal he has that that physicality that might make man if there's ever been a case for the theory that like acting talent is genetic right like there's a scene in the movie it's a really innocuous scene where it's like a scene where he goes in to do some line readings for a commercial uh like to audition for a commercial and they have him like putting on uh like a jacket like a, a sports coat yeah and a vest and kind of like flipping it around and doing all these things and it's so it's so weirdly awkward, but it was like a weird out of body experience because physically, he was the same as his dad. Like he was he he had that exact same physicality as his dad. Um, and it was really it was it was it was almost creepy in a way, <laughs> but it was so it was really impressive. The, the um, scene that
0: the scene that struck me, um, that I like I even had to take a note of yesterday when I was watching. It was like there's like a scene where he during the oil shortage part of the movie where I, I think they're just like. I think it's like it's right before they like I think it's before they load up that truck to John Peter's house but he's just like walking through the streets where all these cars are pulled over and he like yells something at someone and he like made me think that like he knew the guy and I couldn't even really make out the line but he just did it with like uh such a sense of like I'm like the man on the street and I just like can kind of like uh I can talk to anyone and like for some reason it was very strange it was just like a moment where I couldn't even like tell what the line reading was because like between the music and all the sounds of all these cars outside, but I was like, "Oh man, like this kid, this kid just like he just walking around like he owns the movie, and he's never been in a movie before." And I mean, I, it just it, it just seems like in, in such in lesser hands of a lesser filmmaker, like that it would just like it would just be a freaking disaster if you just like cast someone that had never acted before when so much of the movie like rests on his shoulders. And I mean, I, I and I don't want to drone on too long about him and make it seem like. Uh, um, a lot of Heim's contributions were any less than his. That was just like kind of where my mind went first because uh, he's kind of like that, 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 that was where my head went first with respect to like the show business part of this movie. But like she ultimately factors into that too. So I am curious, um, yeah. one, uh, what did you think of her performance? And ultimately, like, what did you think of the way he like wrote that relationship? Cause it's like such a, like a, it's like such a complex, different kind of relationship. And, and we kind of mentioned it was like, use that term re- return to form earlier, but it does also feel like of oh, a piece with Phantom Thread and that it's a second straight movie that like relies so heavily on like a, uh, just like a, a very like complex and an ambiguous and codependent relationship in a weird way it's just like extremely different settings
1: yeah I mean to- totally and it's you know definitely the element of codependency is there but it feels so different from phantom thread because mm-hmm. fan- I mean in a way I- I'll say in a way because fa- phantom thread is also about uh right like about um <laughs> about maturity and immaturity mm-hmm. uh, you know plays kind of a big role in that relationship. But there, there's so much other stuff going on in Phantom Thread and that relationship with 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 mothers and sons and there, there's a lot of like weird there's a lot of weird shit in Phantom Thread. I, I, I love Phantom Thread. Phantom <laughs> Thread was my top film for 2017. But I think it's it, it's you know besides kind of the, the the topography of it, it's hard. I don't know that there's necessarily much to compare. You know, as far as the relationship goes, I thought uh, I thought Alana ha- for you know get it out of the way. I thought Alana Haim was stellar. Again, you know, I, I don't know no previous acting experience except for I think she she was in documentary now, I think, at one point playing herself, though,
0: mm.
1: not really a uh, uh, not not really a, uh, an actual role. I think she was also she was in. Did you ever watch uh, the Bash Brothers experience? no like the, it's uh andy sandberg and uh oh um, yeah oh no i did i did okay yeah, Schaefer. Yeah, yeah oh yeah like,
0: the, the, the 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 mark mcguire like thing they did yeah, for the 30th... jose canseco yeah. yeah the thing they did for netflix yeah yeah okay i forgot that yeah, was a long island thing
1: yeah i mean she's in that too for like a minute and it's kind of funny but i i would say again by and large not an actor um mm-hmm. and nevertheless just so natural and and again you could make the argument for sure that just like, probably like, like Cooper Hoffman, right. Like PTA has been friends with the Hyam sisters for like, probably close to 10 years now. Like, I mean, he's, he was directing music videos for them way back when. So, I mean, he, he directed, I think he directed music videos from, from their first, uh, from their first album from days are gone. Right. So.
0: Maybe, I don't, um, yeah, I, yeah, I actually don't know it i don't know a ton of their music but like i i remember looking back at that at some point in the last couple of months and like it's he goes he, he does go back like pretty far with them and i guess he like in so it, it's just, it's just interesting you like I, again i was listening to interviews earlier but i forgot when he first said like he had the thought that she could carry a movie and i don't remember exactly what it was that like gave him that idea if it was just uh if it was just an inkling or if it was other some some kind of other moment when he was you know directing her like way way back when but like it was it was it was just pretty inspired too to like you know to just be like i'm gonna go all in with both of these people as, as opposed to being like, you no, know, we'll have like one established movie star and then like another newcomer is like, nope, I can I can do this. And I'm I'm, just very impressed he, he pulled it off because like you said, she's like, it, it certainly does feel like very natural. And I think it's also a difficult performance in that like, you know, I think in some ways, I mean, not that I've ever really tried acting, but like, I feel like in some ways it might be harder to like Tr- try and act immaturely than to like be a younger person acting mature as great as I think like uh, Cooper Hoffman was. And I think the, part of the brilliance of the Cooper Hoffman performance is that he's like putting on the airs of being like well beyond his years that he has like, you know, you see cracks when he's like, Oh no, he actually still is a kid. Whereas here it's like, no, like you got to buy that. Like she's a 15 year old that like, you got to buy that. You just want to hang out with, no, you got to buy that she's a 25 year old that would want to, that would uh, conceivably want to be hanging out with these 15 year olds, which, which is, which I, I think a lot goes into like creating that, uh, character that would you know is clearly like bored and really not sure of what she wants in life but is like sure I'll spend my time doing this
1: yeah and and I will also say you know there is definitely an element right of kind of the trading of places and Cooper Hoffman's character Gary being sort of the more mature one and um, and, and Alana being sort of the less mature one but um, what comes with that is sort of a difference in how you have to physically be an actor And, um, you know, I talked a little bit about Cooper Hoffman's physicality in that role, but Alana Haim also shoulders a great responsibility with that because in order to present that accurately or to present that believably, shall we say, I felt like there was a lot of physical comedy assigned to Alana's role. She has to be able to to make a couple of pratfalls here and there. She has to have weird expressions She has to walk strangely sometimes like there's, there's several. And a lot lot of
0: running the whole movie.
1: A lot of of running. Yeah. Um, But just, she has to, uh, and that's, that does not come naturally. I mean, I think a lot of people are so familiar with physical comedy because it's sort of the bedrock of like American comedy and film, like, you know, Buster Keaton, (laughs) like that is what we think of when we think of American comedy, uh, historically speaking. But it's not easy at all. It's, it's certainly not easy for somebody who's not been trained at all in that regard. Um, and so to have her kind of just seamlessly come into that role where she has to be so like physically open and fluid and goofy, um, is, is very, uh, it's very, very impressive. Uh, yeah, and
0: I, and, and also just to like, I don't know, uh, have that have have that level of chemistry with someone that's like uh, I'm 17 years old when you're 29. Uh, even if like you know, I think the uh, the the for a lot of the movie the, the 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 relationship isn't is it's it's way more complicated than simply something romantic. But at the same time, you have to like I mean, it's interesting that like they. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly don't even know how to describe it. Like, I mean, I was I was certainly fascinated by it, and it's like you know, I think they. I think they both like have some kind of connection because at some point they're both, I don't know, they're both, they're both searching for something and they find uh, something in each other where like they, they obviously like being around each other and uh, working together and whatever professional capacity this is, whatever kind of, I don't know whatever waterbed business this is and uh <laughs> it, it's it's it, it, it's it's interesting i feel like they both find that they give each other purpose but at the same time there's like i don't know like there, there's like a bubbling resentment in a way that like isn't necessarily derived from something romantic as the movie goes on but more just like oh like jealousy in that they see, they both see opportunities where the other might be okay without them and so much of the you know kind of cut, cuts right to the core when gary makes some kind of comment like you'd still be uh taking pictures at high schools if it wasn't for me but like you know he he sees her like you know uh possibly having some success in politics and she sees him like you know being able to like run the business and socialize with his other friends and be happy doing that without her and it just it just like stirs up feelings in both of them and i i I just think like it's it's like really impressive because it's, it's it's just like a different kind of relationship than you're normally seeing uh like either teenagers or young adults have to like you know uh engage with in movies and i and I, I i I kind of like I'm very impressed that PTA was able to go there as like a, a fifty year old dude you know
1: yeah, I think you know I, I, there's there's definitely a tendency in movies that talk about you know uh kind of uh, you know romantic movies, romantic dramas or comedies that talk about relationships between older and younger people mm-hmm. there's a tendency to place all of the uh, you know characteristics on one side of the spectrum right or it's like the older person is both older and wiser and smarter and more emotionally developed than the younger person is less mature less emotionally developed less world weary but probably more you know sprightly or whatever and that's where the relationship comes into play and I mean that's like that's the basis basis for every like manic pixie dream girl film ever right (laughs) is like the guy is like stoic and mature and older and the the lady is younger and more free-spirited um I, th- I think, I, th-
0: I think red rocket was a pretty interesting twist on that too. I mean, people have been talking about these movies a lot in tandem because they both have, you know, age gaps at the center. And I think, I think, I think what's interesting is that like, I, I don't think it's that simple with either of them and both those movies kind of engage with that in thrown unique ways.
1: Right. And I think in, in regards to licorice pizza, right. Alana is older and more, she's more experienced, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that, that element probably goes without saying, right. Um, uh, you, you get the feeling that she's, you know, been around a bit um, in, in terms of relationships, but she's not as savvy or as world weary as Gary is. Who's and, she's prob- and she's probably
0: encountered some guys like Gary before that just being around Hollywood that think they're that, that, that are pretty high on their own supply.
1: Right, of course. And and we even see that within the film that there is sort of this incessant stream of people who are constantly showing this kind of confident interest in uh in, in Alana. And we we can talk about kind of that because there's a whole other dynamics there that I just love. But um what what I really liked is that they're both immature in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the movie makes no bones about that. It doesn't it doesn't try to hide or glorify one of like, you know, it doesn't try to like Hide those traits or glorify one of them as being better than the other. They're both immature in in different ways. You know, uh, they're they're both immature in that they don't really tr- necessarily trust the other one uh, completely. Whether it's Gary doesn't trust Alana not to run off with you know another guy, and Alana doesn't trust Gary not to not to forget about her. Uh, you know, and that's kind of the central conflict if you will of the film so right? did you buy, did you
0: buy in the first place that she would like show up to that restaurant in that first scene like did you like did you do like oh i kind of get why this character would be like even if she's not physically attracted why she would be like intrigued by a guy like this enough to like you know show up there in the first place when it's when, he's, when he, she finds out he's 10 years younger than her
1: of course yeah. yeah especially you know and this is another you know i don't know how much we really want to dive into kind of the discourse surrounding this film mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people have been trying to view this film through the lens of, of the way that the world is now. And I do not know many 25 year olds now who would go, you know <laughs> out with a 15 year old, you know, would go out to a date with a 15 year old. But that's because we're a different generation now. I don't think millennials think that same way, and I don't think Gen Zers think that same way. Mm-hmm. But baby boomers, people you know who were born in the 1950s, uh you know in early 1960s who were living in that time period I think there was a different perception of the world a different kind of curiosity and I don't think this movie necessarily says like oh those were the days like it's just it just is it's not trying to glorify that in any way it just represents it accurately so I I could totally buy that especially for the time period
0: yeah. You kind of mentioned the, 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 different, the different types of guys that like confidently approach uh, Alana. So that gives me the chance to ask you about all these other types of cameos that show up in the movie for, I don't, I don't know if there's that much to say about like the, the earlier part of it. Uh, but like, I was, I was, I, I really, I don't know why, but I smiled a lot when I show when I saw um, uh, Skylar Gizondo show up as Lance. Uh, Cause I, I mean, I, I really like that guy. I mean, and not that I've seen him in a, in a, in a ton of stuff, but he um, he was, he was uh, great and book smart and was, I mean, it does what's asked of him in Righteous Gemstones, but this is just very different. It was cool to see him, like, ident- uh, PTA identify him as someone that could, like, kind of play this cool, suave child actor, and I, I certainly like that. And um, I, But, like, but there's that, but there's also, like, you know, these older guys that they come into contact with earlier in their film, Um, and, I mean, those guys serve purposes beyond just being someone that, like, sees her as someone to potentially, um as a romantic interest, but, I mean, that is kind of how a lot of these guys are brought in the movie, whether it be uh, Sean Penn or the way John Peters ultimately tries to, like, kind of get at her um, were there any? Was there any particular cameo that you like? Got the biggest kick out of though.
1: I think John C. Riley appearing as Fred, <laughs> Gwinn, Fred Gwynn for approximately ten seconds was absolutely hilarious. Was it ten seconds? Um, I thought it was more like a split second. Uh, he. Wait, yeah, he, I mean, really, he's literally in in a, in a
0: panning shot across a. <laughs> right, <It's, laughs> a he, he's he's the, he's the Herman Munster type figure as they walk into the teen fair.
1: Correct. He, he is supposed to be. think he is supposed to be Fred Gwynn. Like yeah. he is, he's supposed to be playing Fred Gwynn. I mean, that was that was just. I thought that was really funny. Uh, that, that was a great way for uh, um, for uh, and to collaborate again <laughs> for, for PTA to yeah slide in one of the guys that he really likes. Um, but no, I mean, I for me probably. I mean, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan mm-hmm. musically speaking, so to have him come in and play. It, I think he's supposed he's he's supposed to be playing Mark Robson. I mean, they you know explicitly saying he's supposed to be Mark Robson. Obviously, they give him a different name, but Mark Robson was the director who uh, made the film Bridges the Bridges at Toko Ri, which has William Holden and Grace Kelly, and that's the Uh-oh. that's the film that they reference in that that scene. But he also uh, he also directed Valley of the Dolls. He was just a really weird guy. Uh, had like a heart attack, like while shooting a movie in the 1970s and died. Very much, I would say, an accurate portrayal of our Mark Robson, uh, in this movie. It's actually, just never, kind of I actually like a, never
0: heard of the bridges at Toko It's funny that he did that, William Holden did that, and the bridge on the River Kwai, which I have seen, but <laughs> that's funny he did those within three years of each other.
1: <laughs> William Holden was in both, yeah. Mark Robson did not
0: direct, yeah, 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 as I meant, William Holden was in both, yeah.
1: Um, Mark Robson directed Peyton Place. I think that's probably where most people would recognize his name yeah
0: i've never actually seen Peyton place it's one i had to have on my watch list but it's funny that he he got nominated for best director uh for that and then i guess the next year it looks like for the end of the sixth happiness uh which uh it's 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 kind of funny like i i I did i did not know that was supposed to be the analog in the movie it makes sense that you've identified that it's just kind of funny to think oh that guy was supposed to be someone that got uh nominated for best director twice less than 15 years before the events of the movie and he's just kind of there like having a drunken old time in this movie it's it's funny
1: yeah, and I mean Mark Robson is was was a controversial figure. I mean, he somewhat infamously was the uh I believe the the RKO uh editor who carried out the cuts on Magnificent Ambersons, Orson oh. Welles' film and, and basically destroyed it for a very long time. That was that was Mark one of Mark Robson's early jobs in the 1940s. Was I think I really- I, think I,
0: wa- I think I watched The Magnificent Ambersons like uh or no, no. I guess I think I did that. Never mind. I think I might have done that after we uh, talked about uh, other side of the wind. But like, so whatever versions out there now is like, like the right version, I guess. Yeah, the
1: one that's oh, okay. been released by Criterion that was available, yeah. you know, it's widely available now. Is is the uh the, the properly gotcha. edited film? Okay. I watched but that for yeah, the first
0: time earlier in the pandemic, I think.
1: Yeah, the the RKO cut in the nineteen forties that you know basically you know made the ruined the film was uh was done by Mark Robson. Hmm. Um so uh yeah it's just it was a very interesting character to kind of pull out of history to put into your movie. But again it makes so much sense in a way that is that that feels real right because it's the kind of person who if you were growing up in the valley in the 1970s, early 1970s, it's realistically the kind of famous person that you would run into at a bar. Mm. You would probably not run into Charles Manson or Sharon <laughs> Tate, or you know, or or any one of those people. But you could theoretically run into Mark Robson. Like it feels realistic, and it, it even though it was somewhat of a caricature, thanks to Tom Waits's you know drunken wailing uh it's still it still felt it felt so so like I said textured and just and 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 uh tied to reality yeah
0: you know I had a really fun time with this movie and I was having a fun time and then like I guess we're like you know an hour and 15 minutes in I'm like I'm really enjoying this I'm like Oh shit! There's like a still a Bradley Cooper performance coming that I've heard is like pretty fun because like I think I, I had talked to um or I talked to our friend Ben Lubin about the movie he had seen it well before I did and uh I, well I talked to him about Nightmare Alley and like he kind of like hinted at the fact that he actually really liked Bradley Cooper in this movie so it was kind of a treat for me to like be sitting in this movie knowing there was like. Uh, knowing I'd enjoyed the first hour and 20 minutes or so, and yet I still had this uh, interesting Bradley Cooper performance that was still yet to come. I'm wondering what, how did you feel about the like the the back half of this movie and that it's kind of like an interesting like departure, whereas like, it it felt like we're just kind of like focusing on some like different, like, I don't know, uh, smaller scale hijinks with these kids. And then all of a sudden we go on like this, uh, we go on this adventure through the, through the Hollywood Hills, but also like, all of a sudden like get thrown into like the same time, this like political campaign with this uh Joel walks being played by uh Benny Safdie story that uh I feel like in lesser hands would have just felt like really tacked on, but it was actually kind of, kind of interesting. Like, I don't know. What, what did you think of the Bradley Cooper of it all? It was, I, for me, it was kind of fun to watch him like go balls out in a way. I feel like I haven't in a while.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's great when, when he gets to play truly maniacal insane characters. Mm-hmm. So, playing this sort of deranged version of John Peters who I've heard was is kind of crazy but you know I- <laughs> Well, no. what's also
0: funny is that, like, I apparently, like, PTA, like, like fully got his permission to do everything he did with that character, which is cool. John Peter's permission, that is. But also, I guess he might be friends with Bradley Cooper because he was, like, a producer on A Star Is Born. Like, both the new one and also the one with Barbara mm-hmm. Streisand, who, as the yeah, movie the makes clear, uh, like, was his partner at the time. And, like, uh, some funny moments in the way he uh, talks about that and all that. I don't know. Like, it, it seems like it's, a, but, like, it seems like kind of gets at what you're talking about, whereas, like, uh that's like kind of the level of celebrity you could like end up randomly encountering in some way, you know Uh, just like a guy like who dated someone super famous and was just kind of like around in the movies or whatever. And we're going to make the most out of like uh, utilizing what we know about this guy and like to making it as like bizarre and hilarious as we can.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think it plays to also, you know, we've kind of touched on how a lot of PTA's films are sort of this episodic construction, right? Mm -hmm. This, these, uh, these eras or, or moments or whatever. And in each film they that he does this in, it kind of has a different purpose, right? Like in Boogie Nights, the the episodic nature is very much to represent different eras of the adult industry, film production yeah. in in the valley, right? Um, and you know, and, and in Phantom Thread, it's kind of the, the lifetime of this brand uh you know in this this that this fashion house and and things like that whereas in this movie to me these episodes really felt like episodes and and not in a distracting way this is not the kind of movie that I'm going to get up from and say man that should have been a tv show um but that's what it felt like it was invoking it felt like it was invoking this kind of serialized sort of tv family adventure sort of, uh, of of vibe, which again feels so in line with the era that the movie is representing, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like very subtly like an ode to the kind of shows PTA grew up with, right? He grew up watching a lot of movies, but he also grew up, you know, his dad was a uh, was, voice actor. It was a, was a voice actor and he was the box announcer for the Carol Burnett show. And to me, that's what a lot of this movie feels like is just kind of like these, these episodes, if you will, sort of played out in sequence. And there's these jumps and some of the episodes are more intense than others. Some of them are just kind of about character building and about building these relationships. But the back half of the film is definitely, is definitely some of the weirder moments. You have the kind of the, this scenario with Bradley Cooper's character where it's like a, it's like hijinks. And then, you know, it's like they're actually in severe danger probably, but you know,
0: I don't know if anyone could actually drive a truck that successfully backwards through the Hollywood Hills, but I think that's one of like the more inspired visual bits of filmmaking I've seen in some time. And it was pretty, I'm pretty happy. They went there anyway. Like you said, it's, uh, I, I shoot. I don't, I I don't think that's necessarily, um, I don't know if that's necessarily like what, what you would call like, uh, is is I don't is something like that truck thing what you would call magical realism or is it more just like movie magic and you're just happy that went there because it's just fun to watch? I don't know. It didn't feel souped up with any kind of CGI type stuff or anything. And it's like, oh, this is just a funny little action sequence.
1: Yeah, no, I would I would say it's it's not quite magical realism to me. Magical realism is, uh, you know, is something magic or totally unbelievable invading a real space. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that scene is more it's magical realism kind of in a way where it's sort of like this slapstick moment sort of sandwiched into a much more serious section of the film, mm-hmm. so maybe in a way, but I agree like it was it felt it felt very old school p t a it felt kind of kind of ballsy like it felt like it felt loose and raw, not the kind of thing and and, and very self-referentially funny very like obviously funny but it was like it didn't it, that didn't detract from it like the fact that the movie clearly knew that that part was funny did not make me like not want to laugh at it like it it, it felt ridiculous but also kind of like here like you can laugh at this that's okay like and i did like it was yeah. funny it was a funny it, scene
0: yeah and i guess i I guess, I guess the last thing i'm curious to uh ask you about is it, i mean well i guess but aside from the very ending and um i want to give you a chance as i usually do to kind of praise any uh actual filmmaking techniques because i mean pta is his own cinematographer and you know does a lot of cool stuff but i was like kind of like i was curious when the when the um as i mentioned earlier when benny Safdie shows up as this uh joe walks who i guess was an actual mayoral candidate who uh um but was openly gay later in his life but you're like uh that that part of the movie like you know it it, 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 I don't want to say it takes its time. I mean, that part of the movie isn't that long, but it kind of gets there and you just kind of see what that guy's really about when uh, Alana is like actually kind of like charmed by him and then it, it, it turns into something else. And I'm, I, I'm wondering how you thought they actually kind of like utilize that because it, it's interesting. Like one of the only times, it's like one of, it's like one of the few times where the movie like actually kind of like leaves Alana or uh, Gary's point of view. Uh, like ever so briefly, though, when he is like when he's just having that discussion with his partner. And I'm wondering what you thought of like him kind of like uh, going there with the story, which I mean, I think the movie would be fine without it. But I, I, I thought it like actually kind of like uh, pulled it off and, and expanded the world in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, texturally, just really a great way to kind of develop the time mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the place. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about an era of politics. Uh, around the time of Harvey Milk, you know, who uh, famously for the audience who's not, not familiar Milk. was a, <laughs> so, yeah, right, who hasn't seen the movie Milk was a, uh, Sean a Penn of, was, a, <laughs> was a politician in San Francisco who uh, was openly gay. He was the first openly gay uh, elected public official in California. Um, and he was assassinated in 1978. So, shortly after the frame of, of which this movie takes place, and you know, I, again, it's sort of one of these longitudinal connections, right? Where it helps to develop the time, and it's not somebody super famous that the movie's reaching for. I don't think most people know who Joel Wax was, but it it it's it definitely helps to build that that feeling of place without being ridiculous or or outlandish. And you know, I I thought. You know, kind of getting back to what I mentioned earlier, too. This idea of this kind of parade of men that all become part of Alana's life, to me, in terms of in the narrative and where it was going, like each one of these different men who comes into Alana's life kind of represents an escape for her in a way. She's there; they're all opportunities for her to break out of this fantasy with with Gary and kind of get to the real world. Like here's. All these grown-up men, right, who are more mature or, you know, uh, seem to be more normal, if you will, than Gary. But each one sort of slowly falls apart as, a, as it becomes clear that they're, they don't see Alana for who she really is, where Gary really does. Alana see, or Gary sees Alana as she is, whereas all these other guys see Alana as they want her to be. And it's and it's different and tragic for each one, right um, Lance Lance wants a mature grown-up woman mm-hmm. that's not really what Alana is. Alana is not like a, a tame adult woman. Yeah she she can't, uh, she
0: can't even handle the fact that he has a, a religious set of beliefs that he is uh, gonna stick to <laughs>
1: right exactly. and uh, you know Jack Holden, doesn't see Alana. He sees Grace Kelly. He sees a, you know, a young woman who can bring him back to his glory days. And there is, there is this tragedy to it, right. With Joel wax where I, I don't necessarily get the sense that, that Joel necessarily sees Alana this way, but it's convenient. This idea of having an, you know, having Alana around, right. This dedicated woman who can make him look like he is not who he is and so there there's that the, you know goes to show first of all that this movie isn't without its emotional you know arcs that's just because this movie was like happy and warm doesn't mean that there isn't complexity to it but i um i really did like that last one because it was it's probably the most like real and down to earth and again just non-judgmental in a way you know <laughs> uh, i loved the 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 interaction between Alana and the man who's implied to be Joel Wack's boyfriend in, in secret. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the character's name is.
0: Yeah, it's, hard. it's actually hard to uh, look up. It's actually hard I to look up character's m- name. Matthew,
1: so- I think, is the character's name, but played by Joseph Cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, they have a conversation after Alana takes Matthew home. And it's really brief. And I think it ends with them being like, saying something like God men are so men are so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and it's it's somewhat it's somewhat of a goofy line, but it felt so like earnest. It was like they're again, just very non-judgmental. like that's what they're both feeling in that moment. you know, they're both feeling kind of heartbroken for different reasons, right. Alana's heartbroken because she's realizing that she's not, going to get love from joel wax like she's not going to become his boyfriend and matthew's realizing that the same exact thing really (laughs) but it it felt so uh so earnest and so kind of down to earth and and uh it was really um really sweet in a way even if it's not the happiest moment
0: yeah. Benny Safti also making some fun acting moves. I mean, I, you know, I like the movies that he makes uh, with his brother, but, you know, he's going to, he was in uh, Pieces of a Woman in like a small part. And then he's going to be in the, he's going to be in the new uh, Kelly Fremont Craig movie with based off the Judy Bloom book. And then he's going to be in the new Nolan movie. Uh, so it's kind of funny that he's like kind of branching out in that way. And I, I, I thought he was like really good here and made the most of a, uh, of a fairly small part. Um, yeah,
1: he's also going to be in the Obi Wan Kenobi uh, streaming series on oh, I, Disney Plus. <laughs> I, I forgot about that.
0: Yeah, we're, interesting. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, like he doesn't get too busy with that because I want him and his brother to, you know, make another movie soon. Um, I'm sure they will. Did you ever listen to the podcast interview between them and
1: PTA? I uh, did. I think it was for a24.
0: Yeah. It's yeah, absolutely. Like the strangest piece of podcast that I've ever listened to. Oh, you, I, I don't remember being struck by it that way. I just, I just remember like enjoying it and like thinking it was cool that like PTA was so excited to uh talk to them. And I, I don't know if they just put them together because, like, here, you're, you're two, you're, you're three of the guys that have like used Adam Sandler differently, if there's uh more to it. So it's, it's kind of funny to like you know, uh, see where they have shared DNA in their movies and that they have all that respect for each other. I, en- I enjoyed that uh, podcast.
1: I mean, totally. I was just remarking on it that, they, like. Josh and Benny did not shut up for like 45 minutes. <laughs> like most of the podcast is just them absolutely losing their mind over talking that's to that's PTA. What
0: talking about. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mentioned, I do think it was, was kind of like that, but, it, but I remember like PTA talked enough that it was cool to see him. Like it was clear how much he appreciated their work too. And I mean, I, so I, i i it was a fun time like i i don't listen to all of those podcasts that a24 puts out but it's fun when they have the right combination of people but yeah i, I want to ask you before you finish up like what would you think of the um what do you think of the, the 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 note the movie ended on because like as i said like i mean we while we didn't really wade into too much the the discourse about the movie and the age gap and stuff and all that like i kind of made it clear like it didn't necessarily like really bother me that much because i thought so much the movie was about them having a different kind of connection as opposed to a romantic one uh but the movie kind of ends on them like at least realizing like in that moment they like they, they, they really like, they really need each other. They want to be together. But I don't know if you even are supposed to like read too much into that kiss. So how did you think about like how they ultimately kind of came together in the end?
1: Yeah. I mean, the kiss is dramatic. The kiss kisses, uh, you know, PTA loves that. Like that's, that was a thing in punch drunk love. And that's, you know, he spoke about that, I think on the Mark Maron podcast, uh, like 10 years ago now, but like, um, you know, just talk, talking about, you know, kind of, the the imagery of classic romance films but to me overall like I think people saying like this you know the, the discourse about this movie that the age gap is inappropriate I think it just misses misses the forest for the trees like this is their, their relationship in the movie is so hilariously unsexual right like it's it's, it's so divorced from any
0: of that well the, um, yeah, the, the, the way people are talking about it, you would have thought they were like having sex the whole movie or something you know
1: Right. And there's there's plenty of instances where I, th- you know, there, there's a scene where there it's the grand opening of Gary's waterbed shop, and he has Alana come in like a swimsuit to model the waterbeds, right? Like she's wandering around in a swimsuit, and that whole scene is about how Gary ends up hooking up with a girl his own age. Mm-hmm. So to me, like the movie very much goes out of its way to to paint their relationship as Perhaps even like painfully awkwardly non-sexual, and and so I really I really appreciated that aspect of it, and I felt that at the end, you know, their proclamation of love for each other, it's it's less about any of that and more about the two of them just realizing that they are emotionally and uh, you know they're a good fit for each other that way. And I felt I, I don't know that I, I felt like that was completely appropriate and and really nice like you know that they're two people who have these different strange things going on in their lives um, and yet they they realize that 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 those things are what connects them.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree. I thought it, I thought I thought it ended well and like it's like the, that that final kiss is so secondary to everything else and it's 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 i don't know it just struck me as more about like how those characters kind of felt in that moment more than like ma- really making any kind of any statement about age gaps more just like look these people like they they, they had a, they had a really interesting relationship and they they need each other to some extent and like but it's it's not really you shouldn't necessarily read too much into that from a from a romantic perspective for sure i would say i said i think i said this to ben and you can cut this out if you want
1: I'll take that one back. I said this to Ben. The the crowd that is saying, like this, you know, that's talking about the age gap discourse. To me, it reminds me of people who walked out of the Da Vinci Code and said the movie's anti-Catholic. It's just like, what like you're like you're 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 digging so hard into something that's really not there.
0: Like I I, I I cannot claim to remember the Da Vinci Code discourse, but while we're talking about criticisms, let me ask you about the John Michael Higgins thing quickly. I don't know if there's much to really add on that other than to see like, hey, it was kind of like a side joke that just really didn't work. But like, I feel like I'm able to kind of like compartmentalize and be like, yeah, I'd rather that not be there. But like, it's it feels so cordoned off from the rest of the movie that like, I don't know. Like, I I don't have that much else to say about it other than like, I'm glad, I'm glad it wasn't more of this movie. And like, yeah, I don't think it's great. And I don't necessarily think that it pays off in a way that's all that... Um, uh, beneficial but it's something that I'm able to just like I don't know not really think about and wish the movie hadn't gone there but like I I, I, I spend so much time thinking about the rest of the movie that I, I almost forgot to ask you about it did you do you have any other takes on that because I think it, it, it's it's something that like warrants some discussion but I just don't know if I have much to add to it
1: yeah I mean and, and to be clear not being of uh, you know East Asian descent Yeah, I I can't claim to really uh, be able to have a feeling on that necessarily one way or the other. I will say, in my opinion, I don't think it was I think it was played for like for the audience to recognize that that was like not right. Like, I don't think you're supposed to I don't think you're supposed to be like, oh, that's so that's so funny because he's right. I think you're supposed to be like,
0: this uncomfortably is really
1: like, this is really awkward. What the hell? Yeah. But yeah, unfortunately,
0: makes- unfortunately, two of the people in my showing last night, I don't think took it the right way and they just straight up left. And yeah, like, I, 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 I think you can't really control, I guess, what the audience does. But like, yeah, I don't I know. Think, I, I just don't know if it got enough out of it, you know?
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely an uh, there's definitely a criticism of it lampshading, right, where it. It's, it's trafficking in the same kind of offensiveness that it's claiming to be making fun of. But I, I would also say that, again, I compare it to a movie like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Where that movie completely uh, planes out all like bad things about the time period and the place uh, and, and goes so far as to have that really ridiculous and strange scene with Bruce Lee uh and and you know to me this felt like you know the the John Michael Higgins character um and kind of what he represents was sort of like an admission that world was not perfect then like showing kind of the imperfection of it it's not trying to make uh you know it's not trying to make out the valley in the 1970s to be a perfect place sure it's showing it for what it was which is that there was definitely people there who were uh at best idiosyncratic at worst just straight up
0: racist um i think i think that's a good way to put it i just don't know if it like put me in the time and place as well as some of the other stuff in the movie did you know sure sure Um, and I,
1: i i you know that's why it's I had I, you know, I, I had a few qualms with the movie and that was one of them. That's why it's not my top film of the year. But you know, we'll mm. talk we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, I think.
0: Sure. Um, I guess the last thing I'll ask, cause we gotta, we, we gotta move to being the Ricardos. We've done over an hour on this, but I, oh, I we, we already talked about the vibe and I'm, so I hadn't really given you that much of a chance to talk about the the rest of the filmmaking in this movie. I mean, I don't know if there's a whole lot to say other than the fact that like PTA knows his uh, music and needle drops pretty well. There's a lot of like stuff that really works in that regard. It's no shock that he knows how to like, I mean, shoot the Valley, but did you have anything you wanted to say just about, uh, any of his particular, uh, filmmaking flourishes that we didn't touch on? Not
1: really. You know, I thought yeah. uh, I thought it was really, really beautiful film. Obviously, you know, at this point, PTA has has learned enough from Robert Elswit and from other people in his careers that he can, you know, I think he shared the, the cinematography credit with somebody else um, for this movie. Yeah. But, you know, by and large. I think he knows how to lens a film now and mm-hmm. shooting it on 35 millimeter was a great choice. You know, I think people were upset that he didn't do it 70 millimeter because he's kind of done that for, like he did that for Phantom Thread and uh, The Master, right? And it's like, oh, I don't think this was a place where we needed it. I think 35 millimeter kind of captures the the celluloidness of it all. I also just loved the, I love the production design, admittedly. A lot of San Fernando Valley still looks like that, you know, oh. so, you know kind of trapped in the golden age. Um, I do.
0: I do. I did appreciate some of the like goofiness of like that uh, of like that teen fair or stuff like that. Like, like it's like, okay, you got, you got a lot of attention to detail there. That's pretty funny.
1: Yeah. But like, for example, tail of the cock and Van Nuys golf course, mm. um, uh, like those do not exist in the same way that they did when this film took place. Right. So like Tale of the cock was completely constructed from photos mm. and from reference material. Um, so that was really impressive to me and just other cool little flourishes. Like, you know, like the, the, the mansion that is stands in for John Peter's house. Yeah. Previously owned by Lyle Wagner, who was a, a member of the Carol Burnett show and a friend of the family for Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. So to me, it's very, it seems very believable that like PTA would just know that this house exists and be like, oh, I want to, like, we should go use Lyle's old house, like, up in the hill. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it felt very personal. And then, you know, those are not the kind, like, I was not sitting there watching the movie being like, oh, that's Lyle Wagner's house. Like, um, I, you know, it's something I read afterwards, but it just kind of makes it feel all the more, uh, again, where I keep coming back to is just like textured and uh, and rich and and personal. And yeah, the music, I mean... You can always count on PTA to have excellent, excellent needle drops that are not anything you would think about for necessarily for those scenes. Like the, the most famous song on the soundtrack, right, is probably Life on Mars. Like, mm. uh, you know, there's there's other songs by famous people, but it's a great soundtrack that just doesn't necessarily ever like stick to one place or one person or one famous band or anything. Like it just it feels very much like this is what's playing on the radio. And again feels very real and very textured. So
0: yeah. Well I think it's I think I think it's a pretty good note to end on because like you know again so much of this movie is the is the vibe and feel. And I I feel like you really got that right and it made it just such a such a really good experience as we talked about. So I think we'll now move to being the Ricardo's uh, which is the newest movie from uh, I guess Amazon studios and also Aaron Sorkin, who's now, you know, directed the third straight of the movies he's written Uh, as I kind of intimated earlier. It uh, it is about uh, Lucille Ball during you know what i'll say i think it should be during one particular week in her life and i'll get to that uh but it largely focuses on uh one particularly one particular week in her life during the production of one episode of season two of i love lucy where uh allegations are bubbling up that she is a member of the communist party and she has to worry about putting on this putting putting on an episode of i love lucy while like wondering what is going to come of that and also uh wondering what the state of her marriage is to desi arnaz and it you know it's but it also is kind of similar similarly follows the i don't know Know, kind of follows the structure of of Steve Jobs uh the Aaron Sorkin movie and that it is kind of cut across a few different timelines and uh you kind of see parts of the early relationship she had with Desi Arnaz but also you know uh a little later in their relationship but also you have some talking head stuff going on in somewhat of a present day though not exactly uh we can talk about that that uh Nicole kimden plays uh Lucille Ball uh Javier Bardem plays Desi Arnaz then we have you know some other uh some uh, some other recognizable faces uh you know showing up throughout the movie uh which you know it kind of includes uh jk simmons and uh, alia shockwatt and uh, tony hale uh plays i guess it's i think it's jess oppenheimer who is the executive producer of the show and they all have their uh different uh roles they're playing uh throughout this uh throughout the movie and the production of this show elijah i guess what i'll say is that I, I, I was, I asked you to do this after I saw your letterbox right up and I knew that you actually had a bit more of a reference point for this. And then I've never, I, I can't honestly say I've watched an episode. I love Lucy since an age at which I like can remember it. You know, I, I, I probably did a couple of times back in the day, like on, uh, Nick at night or whatever like that, but I, it, it's just not something that really ever, uh, really ever stuck for me. It was never in like a kind of a, a family rotation type of thing whenever I did watch, uh, television with my family. So I'm kind of curious, uh, uh, going into this When I mean, uh, before you even get to like what you uh how you feel about uh aaron sorkin the director uh versus aaron sorkin the writer and those two things meeting or uh what what you thought about this movie as someone that i think probably you can you can explain what your relationship with uh i love lucy and lucille ball as a performer is a little more uh if you hear that they're gonna make a movie about her is there a specific angle you're hoping a movie would take and I guess then I would ask what you think of like the snippet of her life that Aaron Sorkin ultimately decided to tackle.
1: Yeah. So I, my mom was a huge, I love Lucy fan. Um, You know, that was for her growing up. That was what was on TV when she was young. And that was, I think really obviously a very influential piece of culture at the time. And uh, when I was growing up, um, we had a lot of I love Lucy on tape and then on DVD and uh, most of the time in high school uh, when I was in high school uh, during the week, my evenings would be filled with my mom and I watching episodes from I love Lucy, Mm. Uh, you know, maybe an episode or two per night. Um, So I've, I've watched the entire uh, I love Lucy show. I've also watched a, a decent chunk of the Lucy show, um later on uh not as good so so yeah and and just you know lucio ball obviously very very influential comedian um desilu productions hugely important production company and i don't know that many people necessarily realize that desilu for example was the production company that gave the the first look and gave the backing for star trek i did not um, know um yeah, which, I mean, no, they were literally, like, nobody else wanted to, like, Star Trek was radioactive, like, nobody was interested in picking it up, uh, and Lu Productions um, uh, was the one who pushed it through with NBC, um, and uh, so, so yeah, and and just, you know, ad- additionally, a lot of other important uh, cultural moments, Mission Impossible, the original show, also Lu Productions, um, you know, so... so very much a big impact a big imprint in the uh, industry um and so you know for me uh definitely a company whose history I was I was very interested in when I was younger and still to this day kind of have a reverence for um and just uh you know in general the show it's a it's a very tightly spun show in terms of there's there's four characters, essentially, and you get a couple of side characters here and there. But by and large, it is, uh, you know, it, it's it's Ricky and Lucy and, uh, you know, Fred and Ethel. And that's, you know, that's really the show is those four characters and those four people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very interesting people and they did not all get along most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um. And so, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to say because this, you know, as far as far as answering your question about where I, mean, I would
0: you, 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 you mean the characters didn't get along or the actors didn't?
1: The actors didn't oh, okay, get okay, along. Okay, okay,
0: okay. Again, um, I haven't watched the shows. So I didn't. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, obviously in a sitcom, you know, people can have arguments, but the movie makes it very clear that like there was obviously behind the scenes clashes even outside of the the week that this movie focuses on.
1: Yeah, and and so you know that's kind of that's the thing that for me, I'm not sure about. And that maybe that's just kind of the, one of like the critical problems with the film to begin with is it has to pick a, you know, kind of a point at which to jump in on this story. And I don't know that there is one because, you know, in reality there, you know, the HUAC testimony thing did happen, but it, it was not, it did not happen the way it was, you know, portrayed there in the, in this film.
0: Well, it wasn't really portrayed in the film. It was more like reference that she'd already been. Right. Not, hearing.
1: not the, yeah, sorry. Not the, right. The, the, the fallout, if you will, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the stuff surrounding it.
0: You mean J. Edgar Hoover didn't clear in front of a live studio audience? Right. Um,
1: you know, I I that was so that's a yeah, there there's an instance of there's some historical accuracy there, but it's not not really like uh, you know, Desi did at one point in the show instead of doing there used to be like Desi would come out and, you know, warm up the the studio audience. Um so I do believe at at one point, you know, instead of doing that, Desi did kind of talk about, you know, about what had happened yeah but not not the way it's portrayed in the film Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's maybe kind of just like an overall just like a problem that i had with the film is like i knew these characters and these people rather and i knew the story but it just felt so unnatural to me because it didn't feel like it felt like aaron sorkin words tacked on to these characters um and to these people and that's what makes it hard is like you have to if you want to tell a story about real people and you want to do it in this way you do have to pick an event you have to pick a time period and i just you know it's hard to it's hard to say how i how somebody could have necessarily made it better picking a different point
0: in time or something like that well i th- I, th- I think there is a way to say actually what someone else could have done and i think that way is that you forget the communism stuff uh, and maybe even, maybe even the stuff about their marriage. But like, if you, if you, if you kind of take this in three different parts of three different things that are going on, whether it be, uh, her and Desi's marriage and whether or not it's falling apart, uh, the communism allegations, but also just the putting on of a show. And I think the, 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 la- that, that is the one part I would have focused on is like, what it's like putting on a, sh- like a show like this for the week and the creative, um, the creative conflicts that might arise, especially in that time when I guess the, not that in 2021, that like, uh, the industry is where it needs to be as far as like, you know, uh, uh, women having as many positions in power as they probably should in production. But I'm just saying like, I found the Ali Shakwat character really interesting, especially her interactions with Lucy in the movie. And that was like the part that I was most engaged in. And I don't know if Aaron Sorkin is even necessarily the person to do that movie, I have heard people talk about why studio 60 on the Sunship trip, trip on the sunset trip didn't work. And uh, so I don't know if I need him to be the guy that like does the definitive behind the scenes, look at a TV show like this, but that was the stuff in this movie that worked the most for me. And I feel like I kind of like uh, the, the, the departures didn't work as much for me. And why, why can't you just do a movie about like these people clashing uh, during the production of a show and how that comes together? Like, I think that would be like super interesting. Whereas it decides to jump around in time so much that I just think like none of the other stuff he's trying to do on top of that really like is given enough time. And that was what kind of like bothered me about the most about the movie. He felt the need to like do more than he needed to do. I think.
1: Yeah. That's a very fair point. I do think the movie jumps around too much. I thought, I mean, like the first thing that struck me was just like, what the hell was the idea with the frame narrative with the, like the documentary I was like, uh, like, like the old, like,
0: not that it's that important but it's like for
1: old versions of characters in the movie and like, like oh, and
0: those people are actually dead it's not even yeah. like it's not even like you got the real people or that like it's almost like made to look like present day it's not like here these people are in 1988 like those people aren't all like some of them might have made it to the 21st century but i don't even think all of them did if you go back and like look at those actual people it was just i i i, I couldn't help ha- yeah i couldn't help like going back and like looking up like how old those people live to be and i'm like this wait w- 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 what is this supposed to even be accomplishing
1: yeah i think i think Alia Shawkat's character, Madeline Pugh, I think she lived to like 2011, but she was also like 90 or 100 or something like. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, never mind. I take that back. So the Jake Lacey character made it to 2007, but he was 88. And the Tony Hale guy, he made it to 1988. That was the one I had in mind. So it's like they're all it's like it looks like it's all supposed to be happening in the same year. But like, I don't know. (laughs) So
1: Yeah, I just thought it was very weird a construction choice that didn't really lend anything to the movie Mm -hmm. it felt lazy to me it felt like they're like it it was like we want to do narration but we don't really know how to make it work for this so we're just gonna have like these characters but then have it be like the real people in in the future talking about this event and all they do is serve to like give the film cadence right like they chime in to like help with editing basically (laughs) like it didn't feel it felt very stilted to me
0: let me ask you before we get into talking about these individual performers and the meat of the story i suppose you know, when a lot of people are talking about this, I mean, I think a common refrain you're maybe hearing from a lot of critics is like, well, like Sorkin just shouldn't be directing. You don't really need him directing this stuff. It's fine. And I'm, you know, my head goes to like, I can I can honestly even see in the last couple of movies maybe where like Sorkin the director got in the way of Sorkin the writer, but like how much of this do you think is on like uh, where like a, another director pulls this in a different direction? like, I, Or does it come down to who has final cut? Because I'm like I if this is how it's written and there's all this jumping around and stuff like that, like I don't know how much a different director is going to really Uh, fix that for me as much as like I want the story told differently like if you just like bring in like I mean I don't know like everyone's like oh no like you know like him and like Danny Boyle or David Fincher working together like those are the right kind of sensibilities and he needs someone to pull him out of that but I'm like if you just bring in some other director like I don't know if that many of the problems of this movie are fixed for me what do you what, what do you say to that
1: yeah I mean it's hard to say like film production is so like of the moment right it's hard to know kind of where where things happen in terms of if there had been another director involved you know if there had been another director involved but this was in the process uh you know almost two years ago maybe that other director would have said hey Aaron you know let's take a look at this screenplay and start cutting some shit out or you know like you know I I I don't think that Aaron Sorkin has suddenly become a worse writer between like social network moneyball Steve Jobs and now Mm -hmm. like That run of screenplays right there, like those three screen, really those four screenplays, Charlie Wilson's War, Social Network, Moneyball and Steve Jobs are like four of the best screenplays of the 21st century.
0: I actually don't like the second. I actually don't like that middle timeline part of Steve Jobs, but like, I still think I like that script better than this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I could probably I I would probably agree that like it is it's the weakest element of that movie. Uh Which probably makes it the weakest movie of that four, but that's not say to me that's not saying a whole lot. Like I still think it's a good movie, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't think that he became a worse writer between then and now. I think the problem is the taming. Like I think the problem is there is no, <laughs> there's no opposing element to be like, all right, Aaron, let's uh, let's you know dial this back, or maybe take a second pass at this, or you know things like that yeah um well,
0: no i i i i see where you're going with that i guess it, you never it just a lot of it depends on a lot of it depends on behind the scenes stuff that we're just like not privy to i suppose and I, it was just a thought i had because i was just like man so much of this is just like seems like it's it's the way he wrote himself into like circles here and way too many of them and i i just wanted to be more focused and i i was just kind of thinking about like how would a different director tackle that but i guess it just depends on you know uh who's able to like actually you know has the power to like reorganize some of that stuff. I, I guess I guess Then I'll just ask you, like, uh, as someone that, like, was more familiar with uh, Lucille Ball's story and who, like, watched the show, like, what did you think of how, like, Nicole Kidman um, captured whatever essence she was going for?
1: I mean, I thought Nicole Kidman did a great job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think you have to give her credit just for the physicality and the, um, you know, the the, the the diction and the, you know, the, the timber, the vocal quality, things like that. You know, she's a, she's an immensely talented actress, probably one of my favorite actresses working today. And she does a great job at it. And she does a great job with the material, which again, it's, you know, it's hard to harp on a point, but it's like, it still feels like Nicole Kidman reading Aaron Sorkin lines rather than Lucille Ball. And that is to say that I think Nicole Kidman did the best with what she had. And I think, you know, the character of Lucille Ball maybe was done a little improperly on a, really? you know, on a film level. I think what they did capture really well, and maybe maybe this is really my problem with it. Maybe I, I will say that this is really my problem with it. They went a little overboard on Lucy as a headstrong woman who knew what she wanted. And, you know, and kind of not that she had no filter, but she she didn't take shit from people you know that was what i liked you know that was true that, that is true to lucille ball that is who she was but i think the movie goes a little bit overboard with it hmm. you know the movie i think it sometimes the movie kind of makes her out to be a little bit pig-headed and it's like uh you know well okay, she so didn't have tact like she was a very smart woman
0: that brings me to two points i have one i was gonna say my, my one one of my big things was that like one of my bigger problems with like a lot of Sorkin stuff is that it's like, I just don't really love how he writes female characters and, uh, on the whole. So I really respected that. It seemed like he was helping on making us realize just how smart she was. So I guess I came in with certain kind of expectations for how he might write, uh, Uh, just any given woman and I was like oh like I I didn't really know this about Lucio Ball I appreciate that he's helping me understand like how much of the brains behind this operation she was however I think it's an interesting point you made about how maybe they might have gone overboard because I watched this with my grandpa who I mean 85 year old guy was obviously around for uh, her heyday and uh, he didn't like the movie and he didn't like the portrayal of her he's like he didn't think it was very fair to her he kind of thought they did her a little dirty and so I, I had it written down when I heard you talking about your mom like I was Wondering what what your mom thought about the movie, if if you would talk to her about it and how she thought that they uh, kind of portrayed her. Because I'm wondering, I I wasn't a big fan, but I was actually like kind of impressed, and I came away like having some kind of level of respect for her. But other people might that are more familiar with her might be like, well, that isn't exactly like what I come to know her as.
1: Yeah, I think my mom had a very similar reaction that I did. Yeah, maybe a little bit more positive, mm-hmm. but still kind of tepid. I mean, her <laughs> the first thing she texted me. Now, this is granted, she had just watched, she had tried or tried to watch um, Get Back the Beatles mm. documentaries, and she apparently hated that oh. um, she could not get through it. Um, I haven't watched it yet. I have no comment on that, but my mom needs like needs something to like keep her interested and keep her awake. So she, her first reaction of like talking to me, I was like, was, well, at least this kept me awake. <laughs> it's like, that's not really a glowing <laughs> review. That, that, that's like, not that.
0: Yeah. You got to have a better bar barometer than that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I talked to her a little bit about it and I think just generally, I think she felt kind of the same way I did. it's it like, it's a good, it's, I, maybe like i said a bit more positively i think she was like this is a good movie but it's not lucy like it's not i think she felt similarly kind of dissociated from what it was trying to portray right you know the the era
0: and the people i i gotcha yeah i guess i can kind of see that it's just hard to it's hard to know when you don't really like know her better than that i mean i don't know how much like I mean, it's interesting i honestly did not know about much about dizzy production so i mean who knows that, that that seems like its own interesting movie in and of itself if that were to ever happen someday uh and all the things that that touched but uh what we did see of their partnership i don't know how much of that story you knew or about their background because my thing was like oh i kind of enjoyed learning a little bit about hollywood in that time but again, I think Sorkin jumped around a little too much for me to really be as invested in the relationship as I should have been, because I felt like a lot of the a, a lot of the strife we were seeing was in that kind of like, uh, I guess, if that second timeline, if you will, where uh, she she's worrying about him, like kind of uh going off and doing uh doing his own thing a lot and then he's kind of upset when she she wants to take that other movie when she was going to go on tour with him and i feel like we're seeing more discord there than we were in the present timeline where they seem like they're actually fairly in sync professionally and so it kind of caught me off guard a little bit where all of a sudden at the end of the movie it's like she's like kind of freaking out over losing him and then there's the thing about the adultery and like it it all kind of blurred together at that point i'm like wait i i thought i was hearing a lot about these problems like in like the timeline from like six years before this point. And now we're like right back to it when we've been dealing with all the communism stuff. And it, it just kind of converged in a way that was a little too like messy and hard to parse for me. I don't know uh, what you thought about like how that part of the movie ultimately worked.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think honestly, I think the story about, you know, the infidelity in their you know, and, and, and Desi and Lucy's relationship kind of falling apart, I think that played the weakest. It felt just like pure melodrama, Mm-hmm. so predictable start to finish but also like you said just completely non like illegible in terms of like how it fit into the greater narrative of the story um uh like it, like i don't know what exactly if there was a deeper like what sorkin was trying to address with like showing how their relationship declines but her public image That's gets cool. better after the
0: we get it when famous people are married have to travel a lot it can be hard
1: yeah. It felt very strange. And, and I think you, you know, you've touched on that, you know, the, the showbiz kind of side of it was probably the most interesting part. And I would agree. Like my favorite scene was not even from the, the main God, this sounds like a freaking Marvel film. It's not even from the main timeline. Like, <laughs> was, my, my favorite scene was the flashback where she goes to meet uh, Charles Kerner, uh, the RKO president, mm. and he fires her completely unexpectedly I was like, that was my favorite scene because of just like, it was so, to me, that felt like the most like Sorkin on ball, like, well, that's, that's funny. That's not what I, as a pun there. Um, So Sorkin, the most on the ball in terms of like what he was good at Mm -hmm. was just like snappy, witty, funny situational stuff, like turning a scene that really shouldn't be funny into something that really does have like, you know, kind of like a bit of wit to it.
0: Yeah. Well, so it's funny is, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a nice, um, again, he likes having those little witticisms in her, like, uh, saying, fuck you, like Nancy or whatever female word he said, the female name he said she could call her. And then she just kind of jumps in at the end and does that it was funny. Uh, but it's funny you, you picked up on that. Cause actually I think one of the scenes that I really liked too, was also something that was off of the main timeline. It was like when the actual like, uh, production of I love Lucy got like set into motion because I don't think I fully had the grasp of like how novel that idea even was in the first place. Like when they're like, Oh, CBS does TV. Like I didn't realize that was the inflection point at which that really became a thing when they're like, yeah, we got Edward R. Murrow, but we don't really do like, tv shows and i I should have realized like yeah there weren't that many of these before 1951 or whenever i love lucy started but that was just kind of funny to like see those guys trying to like explain to her after watching her radio show like what they wanted to do and like seeing the wheels turn for her and then like learning a little bit about like what their place in hollywood was at that time uh like they kind of talk about how desi was a was a fairly big presence on the stage and kind of a musician but like and very charming and liked in his own right but like not the kind of guy that was necessarily going to like like, like the movie that they met on, I guess, like, I guess it were led to believe that some of those are like, are kind of B movies uh, for, for the time or whatever. Like he wasn't like the guy that was leading like the, the biggest movies or whatever. So it would have had to have been a, as, as big of a star as he became. It wasn't like a no brainer to just put him in the show with her, even notwithstanding the, um his, his Cuban background and all of that. So to like, see like what, what her value was to CBS, even if she wasn't that value by RKO, and that she just had just enough leverage to get it done because they were still trying something new. Like I liked all of those machinations there.
1: Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. I don't um, know necessarily have much to add, but yeah, I totally no,
0: I, I, I just thought that that taught me something. It was entertaining, and it wasn't like you know. It, it wasn't too much sorkin whereas like even if i enjoyed some of the stuff in the main timeline about the production of the show even that veered into too much sorkin i swear to god if they had another exchange about cutting the flowers i was gonna i was gonna lose it you know <laughs> uh and and even in mean, at least one of the characters comments and says at one point i'm not doing that again but it was just like that was three scenes past when i was i told sorkin i didn't want him to do it again uh so uh i i really like seeing a lot of the stuff in there and how um, meticulous Lucy was, but like, yeah, it's just like, I just thought there was so much meat on those bones there that he didn't need to do all the other stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, well, and I think, you know, and we, we want to dive kind of, I, I hate to just spend this entire time just kind of railing on Sorkin being, you know, off the chain here, but Well, like, I
0: did I did just give him some credit, so you can go do whatever you want. <laughs> give
1: him some credit, but like I think the biggest issue maybe is that like, Sorkin seems to be best either when he's being reined in or when he's adapting something. Like when he has material to work with- yeah, money balls, you know, social official for sure. Yeah, there is there is some some element, and if you go back and look at his career, a lot of his best work is adaptations of plays or adaptations of books. I, I guess I mean, A Few Good Men. He wrote the play too. And unless he's just like but, directly
0: uh, adapting real life events, like in the newsroom. That's that, that not those kind of adaptations.
1: <laughs> right. No. Exactly. Um. Like, and so that may have been a problem here. Right. Is like. He, he wasn't adapting anything. He's just sort of like sailing three sheets to the wind, like trying to, you know, try, trying to cobble together a story from, I'm sure, look, I'm sure the guy does his research, but it was so unfocused in a way that like realizing that this wasn't really based on anything, it makes so much sense. It's just sort of like, you know, there's not, there's not like a lot of uh, not to go back to the term we used a lot in the last section but well, there's not a lot of texture like it's just sort of you know sort of Sorkinism pasted on top of a lot of things and so yeah to me maybe that was one of the biggest problems in terms of kind of sorting out the good from the bad is like it's good when it works when there when when he sort of hits on it but it's bad it's bad when he when he doesn't have that connection and then he doesn't hit on it
0: yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I think, I, th- yeah, and I think, I think it's just because he's not going off of something, I think that makes it just harder for him to focus, you know? And like, we've already talked about how he just, he feel like he was all over the place and maybe something of that breadth would, wouldn't bother us as much if he like had something he was going off of that, like already made sense. And, uh, here it's like, because he's just not focusing on that, uh, because he didn't focus on that week. Like I found myself wanting him to, it was just didn't work as much for me, but now I'll give you something. I'll give you a chance to say something nice about him. Now, uh, were there any other performers you thought he got a really interesting performance out of? because a lot of people pop up in this movie like we, like we already mentioned some of their names uh but i mean uh, did any of the, did you especially enjoy seeing anyone else in this movie
1: um yeah i mean we've talked about tony hale and alia Shawcat. that I mean, was they're... that was
0: very like against type for tony hale
1: total well, <laughs> I, I guess sort of kind of well kind I mean, of i mean like i guess more of a straight that, man but yeah he's, he's not, he's not usually joke, he's, he's, like. yeah but
0: he's not usually a straight man
1: yeah yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I think, mean, yeah. So that's maybe there is something impressive there. I thought they're both great. I mean, I will say I didn't love. Uh, it was it was not totally enthralled with Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz. There was there's just a different like physicality to Desi Arnaz that I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure he necessarily, uh, you know Javier Bardem really captured. I, I think I mentioned at some point in the past to other people. I'm not sure if I mentioned it to you. Oscar Nunez. Who plays Oscar in The Office? I think that's where probably everybody knows him from. Yeah, um, he's portrayed Desirnez before um, on stage. I've seen some of that, and I thought like he did a really excellent job. I, I would have liked to see him in this role, but I also get that just like it's not not the profile, not the kind of you know, not the kind of performer you're looking for for this movie.
0: He's also, he's also like 10 years. I, mean, I just looked him up. He's like 10 years younger than Nicole Kidman when Desi's actually like six years younger than Lucy, which, I mean, Javier Bardem is older than, is older than her too, but not by as much. Like I, there's some interesting age stuff in here too with like how much younger uh, Nina Ariande was in Vivian Vance when there's already like kind of a big age gap in that show. Um, right, not that especially it, not that because a lot much. of,
1: a lot of Vivian Vance's storyline within this movie, right? is about how
0: she's sure. getting too old i think i think they, i think i think, I think they tried to make her look older because like i know i talked to he's like she's like four years older than me i was like whoa that's interesting and not, yeah. not exactly like aligned with like the uh ages of these people but whatever
1: i thought i mean i thought Nina arianda did a really great job yeah um i hadn't i haven't admittedly have not seen her in a lot um mm-hmm. i i know she was in um you know she was in like richard Jewell for a little bit
0: yeah, she, she played the Florence Foster Jenkins. She played the secretary in Richard Jewell. And like I don't, like, I feel like that person like was supposed to be re- kind of Russian, if I remember correctly. I could unrecognize. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean like she's
1: been she's been around. This was a great role for her. I I just wish the character had kind of been div- div- dived into a bit more. I mean, fam- famously, and, and the movie sort of touches on it, but um, really it's just sort of a vague. You know, like v- Vivian Vance and William Frawley did not get along at all. Hmm. At all, at all. Uh, quite famously, when uh, when William Frawley died, I'm I'm fairly sure the uh, the the urban legend is that when uh, Vivian Van- Vivian Vance was at a restaurant when she heard that uh, William Frawley had passed away, and the, the the legend goes that
0: she stood up and said, "Champagne for everyone." <laughs> Jeez, it doesn't really come through in this movie. They make a couple of references, I think, to them not really uh, getting along, but it's almost like hard to know, like at times it almost feels like I, I lost track of it. They're talking about the characters or the actors within the movie. And, you know, hell, maybe there's a version of this movie again that just focuses more on a week at that show that like has room for something like that, uh, which who knows that-, that might be actually kind of interesting to have to like watch these people like going at it, but then like have to turn it on and off once they're on camera or something like that that would have been kind of interesting. Actually. I think, I think there, I, I get my point being like, I think maybe Sorkin thought he needed to do more, but it's like, hell, if you like, just like research. I mean, not that he didn't, he, I'm sure he was aware of that, but like, I, I just, it just seems like there's others hearing you talk about that. It's like, look, there's potential for plenty of juicy stuff. If he just wants to keep it on that set, you know?
1: Yeah. And I felt like a lot of it was made to just be funny. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when it really, it should, it could have been a lot more intense and a lot, a lot tighter, um, you know, a lot more a lot more real uh, realistically antagonistic. You know, I'm sure William Frawley had his moments, but by and large, the recollection of William Frawley from everybody that knew him was he was an asshole. He was not a nice guy. Um, and the movie definitely shows him to be, you know, grumpy curmudgeon or whatever, but it also kind of and hints at him
0: being a drunk of sorts.
1: Him being a drunk but he also has like moments of you know of wisdom and it just felt really weird to me because it's like I'm like where was Sorkin getting that from like there's there's no I don't know of any stories of William Frawley being like actually really sagely or really you know uh really really actually quite a a, you know a, a robust and smart man like he's kind of portrayed at some points in this movie and most of what you know, I've heard about William Frawley over the years is that he was just out and out an asshole. Mm-hmm. Desi had to uh they there had to be I think they they may talk about this a little bit in the movie, but they they sort of like almost joke about it. But there was there was actually like seriously stuff in his contract uh about like not being able to drink at certain times because like the network Jeez. and Desi were so like uh, you know, like this is your last chance kind of thing. Cause he had burned a lot of bridges by the time i love lucy started
0: he's, he's an yeah. older guy too like i mean compared to the rest of the cast right of the show so um I don't yeah know. it's interesting that um i don't know it just i'm sure all, that i i i don't doubt like you're saying that that came with a uh with a lot of baggage so i'm again once again like i just I, it seems like these people were characters in enough of their own right and again like i like i, I just i, I want to shout out alia shakwa too like i like i, I said earlier it was, it's cool watching her who's you know popped up in some more serious fare uh, in movies every now and then, but it's largely just uh, been on sitcoms. Like it's fun to watch her getting to go toe to toe with Nicole Kidman in a scene. And I really got a lot out of that. And I just thought the, that that was like some of the richest material in the movie, you know, like uh, just, a, a different type of scene we have uh, in pop culture about like, you know, to, what lengths women go to in the workplace to kind of stand up for them and and into what lengths they'll like either stay silent or just like do something to get a leg up and seeing them kind of confront that head on in that moment, uh, was really interesting as was, God, that that was such a complex scene where like, uh, where Vivian confronts her about sending her breakfast. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, that 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 almost took me aback. and like I, that kind of had me on my toes, especially when I watched the movie this se- a second time. Because not gonna lie, I fell asleep the first time. Uh, I was on my, I was on the I was on the couch at my grandpa's house, and uh, so it, a lot of the movie uh, clicked better, understandably, the second time. And it was like, man, like I mean uh that i guess that might have been maybe that was one of the examples you were talking about is when they when they went a little far with like with their portrayal of lucy i mean who knows maybe that's based on something that happened but it was like geez like i was like pondering how i felt about lucy for like two scenes after that there's just like a, a lot of oh like i said just a lot of really like interesting complex stuff just going on within within the walls of that show and i and, and i liked all the i liked all the performances like and I, I i even like the side stuff like i i liked the banter that jake lacy had with alia shakwat and those two writers and that was i don't know it, it that that flowed easier and it was cool and i mean sorkin still got to do his walk and talk and all that in that moment in one of those moments but it didn't it didn't feel didn't feel like too much at least for me in that moment like it did in other points of the movie so again I found a quarter of the movie that I wish had been expanded and that, that, that was just kind of my reaction to this thing. So um, did you have any other final thoughts on this one before you wrap up?
1: Not really. You know, I feel like we've spent a lot of time kind of talking about how messy this film is and whatnot. And I I made the comment in my letterbox review that it's like, you know, maybe this film works better. If you really don't know anything about, you know, I love Lucy, Lucille ball. If you don't know anything about that show or those people, maybe this film really works better. I, I, I still think it has, you know, specific structural problems that whether or not you know about <laughs> I Love Lucy or not, it's not going to change. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't discourage people from watching it, you know, purely on those grounds necessarily. If you're a fan of Sorkin films, it might be worth it. You know, I feel like if you can try and watch it divorcing what you, what you might know about the time period or the people or the show that's being presented from what you're watching, I could see it being a better experience.
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, I I didn't really know much. And I think maybe that's why certain aspects of the uh, of Nicole Kimmins portrayal of him or or Aaron Sorkin's, I should say, Aaron Sorkin's portrayal of Lucille. Like, maybe that's why that didn't bother me. But like, I still had plenty of issues with the movie in and of itself, as I said. So I. I would be curious to like, you know, at least talk to more people about it than I have to see like what their how much they liked it and versus compared to like what their relationship was with the show um, going in for for sure. But yeah, I think that's, I, 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 but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. And I, at least I'm glad, I'm glad it's on prime. I mean, I think it's uh, it, I, people should still find it pretty easily that way. And it'll be uh, curious to see like what the overall reaction is and um, how it does with the, you know, the, the expanded Oscar field, it seems like it's going to be right on the edge there. And there's certainly uh, 10, 10 movies. I prefer more than it this year, but uh, be curious to see how, how everyone reacts to it and like what the Academy is thinking about it. Cause it certainly like is going to pop up here and there, but who knows exactly uh, how much, um, Elijah, before we get out of here, anything else you want to plug that you've been watching or working on or anything like that before we, before we leave?
1: I've been uh, I've been trying to wrap up everything from twenty twenty one that I still same uh, need to see before I can you know kind of say that I'm done with uh, done for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I did take a detour through some weird old uh, cyberpunk films, hmm. um, which was a lot of fun. Watched like uh, this film this film called Nemesis and a film called Trancers, which are both kind of like the best way to kind of describe them would be like slightly less budget Terminator, but with more crazy stuff happening in both. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and, um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to look back at past decades and realize that there's probably like there's there's always a lot of films made every year. And, you know, realizing that so many of them are kind of just lost to time because they weren't really popular when they came out. And that's just sort of it. That's sort of the death sentence for a film. And, you know, to kind of see that still today, like there's tons of films that come out every year that nobody ever hears about. So uh, I've been having a lot of fun just kind of going back and trying to catch some of these films that like have, you know, like maybe one or two people have ever recommended to me. And if you want to follow that, as I follow me as I do that. Uh, I am on Letterboxed, uh Elijah Howard under uh Mr. Smith goes the number two, FL, like Florida.
0: There we go. Yeah, I, I I actually don't know if I have anything to recommend today because I'm back in a little vortex of where like I'm talking about everything on the podcast that I'm seeing. So there's nothing really outside of that for me to recommend. And I'm I, I'd already mentioned in our last podcast that I'm uh kind of trying to rewatch season one of Euphoria before season two comes out. So I've already kind of like noted that to everyone, but uh that season's pretty great for the most part. So I'm looking forward to season two. And uh, but it which will have already started by the time people like listen to this. So um just keep an eye out for everything else that's coming to of Oscar season and uh hope all of you guys um, are able to catch most things here or there, uh, amidst the pandemic surge and can uh tune in. Uh, cause coming up next, we'll probably uh have an episode on uh tragedy of Macbeth and Don't Look Up with our friend Daniel and uh with our friend Fred, we'll be talking about the King's Man. And then after that, it's uh, kind of me doing what elijah said he's doing and just trying to round out 2021 where i can and uh we'll kind of see what pops up in my uh watch list that i'm able to find that that i'm inspired enough to talk about and find someone who uh wants to do so so uh as usual you can find me on letterbox at josh churnervoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y on uh, also on twitter and uh podcast twitter is at Movie Pod, and podcast email is at, Movie Pod at gmail.com so uh thanks again t- to elijah for joining thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time